Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Genesis chapter 21 on the Hebrew word hashav and its many uses in the Old Testament, as well as its many uses and application for us today. Now, this message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org and also available at iTunes.com. That's friendshipwithgod.org and iTunes.com. You can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to support financially with your donation this Bible teaching radio program, this Old Testament teaching Bible radio program from Tom Cantor. If you enjoy this program and would like to continue supporting it on this station in your city, we need your support at friendshipwithgod.org. You can donate online with a one-time donation. Or if you'd like to be a monthly sponsor and donate, you can call us at 800-247-3051. We can take your donation right over the phone. 800-247-3051. Now, if you'd like to write in, you can also send in your donation to Friendship with God. That's Friendship with God at P.O. Box 711-330. I'll say that again. It's P.O. Box 711-330, and that's in Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. So again, that's Friendship with God at P.O. Box 711-330. Santee, California, 92071. You can send in your support or even send in a letter of encouragement to Tom Cantor and our ministry. We'd love to hear a testimony from you. Now, if you'd like to email Tom Cantor, you can do so at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. And you spell Cantor, C-A-N-T-O-R, C-A-N-T-O-R, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Send him an email. Let him know you're listening. If you'd like to sign up for his daily devotional verse, you can go to friendshipwithgod.org. Sign up for that. You can also go there to send a free gift to a lost Jewish person. You can sign up for that right online at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's Tom Cantor teaching us about the time of life that God gives to man and the time of life that God restores to man by giving him the mind of Christ. We saw that was the word that was used to describe same two people, Oholiab and Betzliel, as they were making the ephod for the tabernacle. And it said in Exodus 26, 28, 6, Exodus 28, 6, and thou shalt make the ephod of gold and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen with cunning work, with hashav work. So when we saw Oholiab and Betzliel embroidering those cherubims, you know, don't bother me now. I'm working on the cherubims. And they've got the fine twine linen and, you know, and, and they're reaching for the gold, the pile of the gold thread and the pile of the purple thread and the pile of scarlet thread. And we saw them embroidering. That was chashav, chashaving. They were chashaving there. What are you doing? I'm chashaving. Can't you see? I'm doing this. Don't bother me. So when we saw, we saw them also weaving, this time they had the gold threads and the purple and the blue and the scarlet to make the ephod, the breastplate. You know, what are you doing there? I'm weaving. I'm chashaving. I'm making it. That's what I'm doing. And we saw how they worked hard on it. It was emphasized. It's emphasized. They work, did a hard work of embroidering, hard work of weaving, hard work of hashabing there, those curtains and also. And then same with the ephod. And they were so intent, and they couldn't be distracted. The world was shut out from them. They were just bent over until they got it finished, and they held up the curtains, and they said, oh, whatever, you artisan. So he looked at it, he said, perfect, perfect. Unless it wasn't, then he went back and did it again. Anyway, perfect. He says, perfect. It's just what I wanted. Oh, that's nice. And when God then said in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, and then God hashabed, 
righteousness into Abraham, then we understand how God was like a holy album Betzleel, and he's reaching for the gold, the threads, and the purple, and the scarlet, all threads of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's working hard to embroider onto and weave into Abraham's soul the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just like a holy oven and Bezalel, God would stand back and he'd look at Abraham and say, perfect, perfect, just the way I wanted it. I, what do you see, God? I see the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've hachshaved it into him. But of him, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Why? He hachshaved it. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So God hachshaves, he embroiders, he weaves the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ into us. That's how he looks at us and he says, I see the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who has a, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Who hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, hashav, the righteousness of God in him. So God's the hashaver. Well, this word hashav is very important because this is the word that Joseph used when he said in the verse, I hope you're still looking at, in Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, you thought you hashabed evil against me, but God meant he hashabed it unto good to bring to pass that much people save my life. See, Joseph's brothers, they wove the events. Ooh, here he comes. There's the pit. There we go. Throw him in the pit. He dies. You know, that was a hashabing of them. They were weaving it evil against me, but God was also, he wasn't sitting back he said, they were weaving all those weave the events to evil, the murder of Joseph. And he's saying to his brothers, but wait, you weren't the only chashavers here, or the weavers. God's a chashaver too. He's weaving also. You're weaving my murder. He's weaving also. What's he doing? Chashav, he says, men are good, tov. And he's chashaving life, chaya. He says, life for much people. So these are the two chashavings which were going on. In Joseph's brothers, Joseph's brothers, they were chashaving his death, and God was chashaving life. One's chashaving death, the other's chashaving life. That's what it is. And this is true not only of Joseph's brothers, not only of Sarah, but also in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at Acts 4, verses 10 through 12, where the apostles are addressing the people of Israel, he says, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught by you builders. You see? See what they're saying, saying there. He said, look, he said, you hashaved for the Lord Jesus Christ that he should be crucified by the hands of the Romans. That's what you did. You set up the whole thing. You took him pilate. You persisted, etc., etc. And why did you do that? Because you are hashaving that this stone, which had become very important throughout Israel as all the people flocked to him, you were hashaving that it should be not, not, nothing, zero. You were wiping them out. May his name and memory be forgotten, as the word Yeshu means, uh, stands for but then, he says, All right, that was your hashaving. But, but God, he had a different hashaving. He was raising him from the dead. And not only raising him from the dead, but he was making it so that he would become the head of cornerstone. And he was hashaving so that there's going to be salvation and none other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So one hashav's death, God hashav's life. 
And this is what Romans 8.28 is all emphasizing when it says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his promise. Now, why do all things work together for good? Because God's the great chashaver, and he's doing his chashaving to make the weaving and to work together for good. So this is what God was saying to Abraham. And I can look back in Genesis 21, in verse 12. It says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight, because of the lad, because of the bondwoman, thy bondwoman, he says, just do it. And so what God is saying here to Abraham, he's saying, look, I know that Sarah is busy hashaving the death of Hagar and Ishmael. But don't you worry, Abraham, because I also am busy hashaving here, and I'm hashaving life for the world by calling my son out of your seat from Isaac. And for that purpose, Ishmael, he has to leave. But just trust that I'm hashaving here, Abraham, and do all that he says. Don't worry about Sarah's hashaving. Just look at me hashaving, and then you don't have to take Zantac and Valium over this. <laughs> but by the way, in addition to hashaving for Isaac, I'm also hashaving for Ishmael, too. And that's what he's saying in verse 13. He says, and also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. See, God's saying, don't you worry, Abraham, about Ishmael, because I'm hashaving his future too. He's got a future. He's going to be a great nation. So God, in verse 13, gives to Abraham a promise. He says, Abraham, take it to the bank. You've got, uh, you got a promise for Ishmael. He's going to be a great nation. And great nations don't come out of mutilated bodies in the desert. Anyway, so the best way to see the difference in the Bible between believers and non-believers is follow the promises. Follow the promises of God and see what people do with them. And so here in verses 12 and 13, God has given to Abraham two very important promises that God is going to call the great blessing, the person who is the great blessing, out of Isaac, and that God will make a great nation from Ishmael. So Abraham has the promise from God to call the seed out of Isaac, and therefore Ishmael must leave. So Abraham believes God and he sends Ishmael away. Abraham has another promise from God that Ishmael is going to be a great nation. So great nations, like I said, don't come from mutilated bodies in the desert. So Abraham believes God, and he doesn't worry about Ishmael's safety in in this desert of death. So Abraham has this consolation in his despair, and this consolation comes from the promises of God. And by saying in verse 12, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, see, God's promised Sarah was not out of line for the will of God when she was demanding Ishmael's departure. In saying in verse 13 that Ishmael is going to be a great nation, he's promised that Ishmael is going to be safe. And in these two promises, he clutches these two promises in his despair, and he finds peace to go ahead. That's the way it is for us. When we're in despair, we find peace in the promises of God in the Bible. And like with Abraham, whatever our despair is, God has a promise to be the source of our peace. That's wonderful. All right, verse 14. So Abraham's at a crossroads. Abraham, he's heard the shattering words of Sarah. He's also heard the promising words of God. And he has to make a choice. He's going to believe God and obey God and do everything Sarah demands, or he's not going to believe God. And he's not going to do it. I mean, he could have decided to not do what he said. He could have said, oh, it's Sarah's state. He could have said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to build Hagar and Ishmael here, a nice little house and with everything they need. And then, you know, I'll live in Palm Springs and they'll live in Rancho Mirage. <laughs> so maybe they that. But this is a crisis that Abraham was facing. So to obey God or not to obey God. 
And Abraham's decision is what we read in verse 14. Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread, bottled water, gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulder, the child sent her away. Now, the impact of verse 14 is Abraham believed God, therefore he obeyed God and got up early in the morning to do it. Obedience is so important. That's what made Abraham who he was. He obeyed God. He proved that he believed God by his obedience. You know, the Roman Empire, which lasted such a long time and covered so much of the earth in the Roman Empire, you say, what was the key to the success of the Roman Empire being held together? It was obedience. That's what it was. Roman soldiers obeyed their leaders without question. They called them to obey to death. They went to death. That's the explanation for the Roman Empire and how strong and vast it was and how it held together. So Paul's writing his letters to different churches there, different churches, as you know, and his only one church that he commends them for their obedience, and that's the church at Rome in the book of Romans. No other church did Paul start out his epistle as he did in Romans when he wrote in Romans 1.5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. And so Paul was so impressed with this obedience because the Roman believers came out of Rome, obviously, and they had this ingrained in their mind of how important obedience was. So then he ends this whole epistle to no other church. He ends his epistle in Romans 16, 19, when he says, for your obedience is come abroad unto all men. Paul knew that the Roman believers would understand this. That's why he kind of dwells on this subject of obedience when he explains to them in Romans 5, 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And to the Roman believers, Paul explained the relationship between obedience and servitude in Romans 6.16 when he says, Know you not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Now in verse 14 of Genesis 21, in this verse here, what is showing us is that Abraham is like the Roman believers. He's obedient to the faith. He believes the two promises of God, and he gets up early to do what God commanded him to do, which is the hardest thing that God could ever tell any man to do, is to obey his wife. <laughs> but he does it. So Abraham believes God, he obeys God, and this enables blessings to flow from God. Blessings flowing now, because he obeys. Abraham's obedience to give up Ishmael was like a training for Abraham, a training to trust the promise of God and give up your son. Abraham giving up Ishmael, Abraham's being trained to give up Isaac as an offering. And all this is done for our benefit, so that God, through Abraham, could provide you and I with pictures, which is what this is, of God the Father giving up his son to die for our sins. So what we have here in Genesis 21, in many cases God does this, God the painter, he's using Abraham as the brush and canvas, and he's painting a picture for us so that we can study it, like this morning, like we're doing, and learning. Hopefully we're learning this morning. And what are we supposed to learn? We're supposed to learn John 3.16 from this. When we see Abraham giving up his son, Ishmael, we're supposed to see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in this chapter, God the painter, he's busy painting Through Abraham, a picture of God so loving the world and giving up his son. And this is one of the many indications of the coming of the great giving of God the Son for the world. 
It's another one of God's in the Bible. Stop, think, see. There's another one of God's stop, think, see moments in the Bible. And this one is about God giving his son. And these stop, think, and see moments are like little clues along the way as we go down the road of Bible history. So another interesting stop, think, see in the moments of Bible history can be seen in a very interesting history of a sacrifice. Now let's say that Scott, who's sitting way in the back there because he doesn't like me. But anyway, <laughs> let's say that Scott and I were to draw straws. Let's say that. And or what the Bible calls lots. Okay. And let's say that we're going to draw these straws in these lots. And both of the tops of the straws, you know how it is, they look the same. But one of the straws is shorter, let's just say. And the person who comes holding the bottom of the straw, see, he's like that, and we can't see which one's shorter. So let's say the rule is whoever draws the shorter straw, he gets killed. Such a nice game. You know, when I draw my straw, that'll be called my lot. And when Scott draws his straw, that'll be called Scott's lot. And if I draw the shorter straw, then my lot is to die, be killed. And Scott's lot is to live. So whoever draws the shorter straw, his lot is to die. Whoever draws the longer straw, his lot is to live. Okay, with that in mind, turn to Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. Turn to Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. 16, 7 through 10. Leviticus 16 is right before Leviticus 17, <laughs> which has the verse, 1711, the life of the flesh is in the blood. All right, but anyway, it's Leviticus 16, 7. Okay, so here it says, And he shall take the two goats, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats. See, just like Scott and I, two goats. For one for the Lord, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a burnt offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord, make an atonement with him, and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So here God tells Moses, go get two goats and cast lots. He says, like drawing straws, you know, for Scott and me. And by the casting of these lots, we're going to decide which goat's going to die and which goat's going to live. So the casting of the lots is going to decide the goat that has the lot of death and the one that has the lot of life. Okay. And the strange part about this passage is what the goat is called that had the lot of death. In verse 9, you notice? What's he called? The goat upon which the Lord's lot fell. Now, why would the goat who had the lot to die be called the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell? See, in verse 9, the goat that was going to die was called the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell. See, that's a stop and think and see moment right there. See what? By calling the goat that was going to die the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, we're supposed to stop and think and see that that means that the Lord is going to be the one whose lot would be to die for our sins. And the strange part about this passage was what the lot of death was called in verse 8. The lot of death in the sentence of death was called the lot for the Lord. It was called that thing. So why would the sentence of death be called the lot for the Lord? In verse 8 it says, the sentence of death is called the lot for the Lord. That's a stop and think and see moment there. See what? By calling the sentence of death for the goat, the lot for the Lord, we're able to stop and think and see that that means that the Lord's lot is going to be to die for our sins. Now this picture that we have here in Genesis 21 
14 of Abraham giving up his son Ishmael, that's a stop and think and see moment also. Where we're to see in Abraham, God the Father giving up the son to die for our sins, and see in Ishmael, God the Son leaving the home he loves, you know, like God the Son leaving heaven, and to go into a desert of death of this world, as in the Lord's case, to die for our sins. Now, okay, verse 14, it says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, he took bread and a bottle of water, gave it to Hagar, putting on her shoulder, and the child and sent her away. Now, those words, speaking about Abraham, where it says he took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder. And the child. So here we see an Abraham who cares for Ishmael. He cares for Hagar. And we're sure that as we see Abraham giving the bread and the water to Hagar and Ishmael, that Abraham is not saying, well, here's your bread and water. See ya. He doesn't do that. He's saying to them, look, don't worry. I received assurance from God that God's going to take care of you. And he's saying to Hagar and Ishmael, this bread and water that's coming from me is the last that's going to come from me. But the next bread and water that you're going to get is going to come directly from God. And so he's saying to Hagar and Ishmael, while you were with me, I provided your bread and water. But now, this is the last bread and water that you're going to receive from me. Now you're going to learn the great lesson that I've learned in life that unfortunately takes these ways to learn it, that God is the provider of the bread and the water. And you're going to see God as the provider of your bread and water because I'm going to be removed from the picture. And in verse 14 and 15 there, it says, Abraham took a bottle of water and he gave it unto Hagar. And then it says the water was spent in the bottle. But before we go to that, the very, very important phrase there that we need to know. It says that when Abraham gave the bottle, he just didn't, it says he put it on the shoulder of Hagar. Now, he didn't have to put it on the shoulder of Hagar. She could put it on her own shoulder. But it says that Abraham put it on her shoulder. So we see a kindness there. We see a care there. We see a concern there. It's like, here you are, Hagar. This is for you and Ishmael. You will be all right because God's going to take care of you. Now, when we come to verses 14 and 15, it doesn't look all right. It says he gave the water to Hagar. And verse 15 says the water was spent in the bottle. The water was spent in the bottle. So, in other words, Hagar and Ishmael are now forced to think. We've known the water from Abraham's bottles, and now the water is spent in Abraham's last bottle for us. And they transition. And they're transitioning now from seeing Abraham as the great provider to seeing God as the great provider. And so, this phrase, the water was spent in the bottle, that phrase is so important to us because we look at that phrase and we say, you know, I've gone through times in my life like that. You've gone through times in your life like that when the water was spent in the bottle, experiences like that, where you thought, I'm secure here, and all of a sudden, you're not. You know, I've told you this before. The history of our company is to be fired. We got fired by Dr. Gersh. I never told you that story. We had $500,000 worth of business in Hattiesburg, Mississippi doing all the dialysis testing for parathyroid hormone for bone disease. And it was all because of the decision of one man, Dr. Gersh. The big important man was also, at one time, the head of the health department for the whole state of Mississippi. So he's Jewish, in case you didn't know. So we bring Dr. Gersh to, you know, to San Diego. Where are we going to go? Oh, we go to the Marine Room on the sand, beautiful sunset, impress, you know. So anyway, so we go to the Marine Room, and we're having the dinner there. And I say to myself, well, you know, we may have $500,000 worth of business, but this is my one and only chance to talk to Dr. Gersh's soul, and his soul is worth more than $500,000 a year in business. So I start talking to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, he shuts me down. 
just shuts me down completely. And my wife was with me, Cheryl, and John, and Uzer, anyways, we're there. So I'm shut down. And so then my wife speaks, and she says to his wife, who is not Jewish, well, uh, how about you? What do you believe, you know? And right away, Dr. Gersh steps in and says, she is a convert to Judaism. She's converted to Judaism, he says. Then my wife, I don't know where she got these words. It had to come from God. Did it not bother you to turn your back on Jesus Christ? Oh, of course, now, you know, spotlight focuses on Dr. Gersh's wife. What say you? And she says, yeah, kind of. John says that we didn't reach the parking lot before we were fired. And we were. (laughs) And we lost a half a million dollars worth of business. And what was that? The water was spent in the bottle. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. If you'd like to order our resource of the month from Tom Cantor, his book called Whosoever Will Versus Fatalism, a great book from Tom Cantor that will scripturally answer the questions of what is fatalistic Calvinism and who can resist God's will and what are chosen and changed children and did God predestinate people to die and to go to hell. It's a great book that will show that we're all faced with a personal crisis of obedience and it also examines the character of God, his promises, and compares the teachings of fatalistic Calvinism with the question of what if God misled us or lied to us. And the most eye-opening part of this book is that Tom Cantor himself was once a fatalistic Calvinist. If you'd like a copy of this resource of the month, it's available for a donation of $20 or more to the Friendship with God radio program by calling us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051, or order it online at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Now, Tom Cantor also wants to invite you to Museum Day 2014 here at Santee, California in San Diego, California at the Creation and Earth History Museum. We have a Noah's Ark theme this year with an adventure land for kids as well as great speakers like Tom Cantor, Jason Lyle, Eric Hovind, Ray Comfort, and Bill Morgan as well as an Animals After the Ark show. It's great for all families. For more information, call 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051.